Dear friends, I don't know if everybody caught it, but for example, in that first hymn that we sang, there was this little line at the bottom that said, text by Howard W. Kramer. And the people that remember that name, of course, like me, are already dating themselves. Uh, Dr. Kramer was the first uh, regular president of the seminary in St. Catharines uh, and uh, retired, I think, 25 years ago. Anyway, he spruced up this hymn recently. He's in touch every once in a while. He's now 90 years old, uh, still very active and uh, uh, living in a neighboring friendly country. Uh, and so we hear from him every once in a while and uh, I'm glad we were able to use that hymn this morning. Uh, already on the front cover of the convention workbook and as well as through all the announcements in recent months, you will know uh, that we're gathering under the words of Psalm 65 at the second verse with the theme Come to him who answers prayer. Both that theme and the graphic that was designed to illustrate it uh, will kind of show you, if you have a good memory, that the last convention and this one go hand in hand. In this past triennium, we were focusing on God's word, especially on the practical use of that word in issues like biblical immersion, things of that kind. But because praying and studying or reading and studying the Bible must not be just an academic effort, the life of prayer flows from it. You may also recall, for those who were present in Hamilton, that at the last convention we reached to the far side of the world to our partner church in Australia for an essayist, and we benefited from the teaching of the then president of the LCA, uh, that was Dr. Michael Semler. This time we determined that we were going to uh, invite homegrown essayists, both active as rostered workers in our own synod. Today and on Monday morning, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Kurt Reinhardt of Kurtzville, Ontario, and no, they did not name the town after him. Uh, but would you turn to page G10 in today's business? You'll find a little brief sketch there of Pastor Reinhardt's life and work. In addition to the ongoing ministry at Trinity Lutheran Church, he has enriched God's people with his hymn compositions as a presenter at pastoral conferences, and for the past two years, he has been helping the doctrinal concerns movement both in Sweden and Finland, where faithful Lutherans are trying to deal with the apostasy uh, in the established state churches. Anyway, we're deeply grateful for Pastor Reinhardt's willingness to serve us at this convention, and we welcome him now uh, to begin our time of study and reflection. That's one of those. Thank you, Pastor Pogan. I'm deeply humbled to be up here before you this morning. I'm, I'm still not sure why I am here, but I take comfort in the truth that God uses the despised things of the world to accomplish his purposes. As I see it, we've got three strikes against us as we start this morning. The first is that a number of us are jet lagged. I was awake at 4 a.m. this morning, even though I went to bed well after my bedtime. The second is, is that the internet is wrecking our brains. We're no longer able to concentrate as well or for as long as we used to. We're getting used to getting info in quick but shallow bites. 
The third is, is that we are going to try and deal with the things of God. The story of the early church shows what a real problem this is. There was a Christian brother who was talking to some others about the word. As he carried on, he noticed that a number of them were dozing off. He suddenly changed topics and started talking about some juicy gossip about one of the other brothers. All of a sudden, everyone was fully awake and listening on the edge of their seats. The brother then stopped and said how sad it was that when he was thinking, speaking of the things of life, they couldn't keep their eyes open, but when he got into the things of the flesh, they were all ears. Truly, there's nothing that can put the flesh to sleep like a good long sermon. We got three strikes against us, but thankfully we have three persons working for us this morning. I pray that Almighty God will help us to ponder his things this morning and at least keep me from nodding off. If you do, don't worry, I've been there. And the same grace of God that was there for me will carry you through too. And so with the words of another, let us begin. Gold and silver I have none, but what I've got I give to you. Our first part of this two-part essay is entitled God's Family is a Speaking Family. And our first section is entitled God's Family Conversation. Just about everybody knows that family life and speaking go hand in hand. At the moment, my wife and I usually have four children sitting around the table at every meal. Although there's a lot of eating that goes on, you don't want to leave your hand over the meat plate for too long in our house. There are days that you could lose it. There's also a fair amount of chatter. It might get a little out of hand sometimes, as some family members get a little overexcited, but generally it is a happy sound. These are joyful times for a father when I think about it, times that I should probably treasure more than I do, because I know it won't be long before they will be gone. There are other times, though, in family life where there is not so much happy hubbub. These quiet moments normally come when someone has gotten into trouble, or someone isn't getting along with someone else, or even when someone is in a bad mood. Thankfully, these occasions are fairly rare in our house, although is in any home, they are there now and again. The silence in these times tells you that something is wrong. You can feel it in the air. It is uncomfortable. Although not every family keeps up a constant banter over their evening meal, Absolute silence normally suggests some problem in family life. Families talk. If they don't, they tend to be in trouble. Family and conversation go hand in hand. In many ways, speaking is born of family life. If a man and a woman are going to spend their life together, there has to be some talking, some kind of conversation, at least to get things started. There has to be some sharing back and forth of feelings and interest, or it's not likely that anyone will end up with a ring on their finger. He may not be the greatest talker in their life together, but the husband-to-be has to pop the question at some point, or at least be ready to say yes when she finally puts it to him. <laughs> life as a couple begins with speaking, and even as the world knows, talking needs to continue for it to be happy and healthy. 
The gift of children to a husband and wife shows all the more how family and conversation go hand in hand. Parents speak to their children right from the beginning. The first communication might not be Nobel Prize winning material, but the tender words and noises that a mother and father make into their child's ears are the first beginnings of the speaking that will carry on for a lifetime. We learn to talk on our parents' knee. Certainly other people in our lives help out here, and it can develop in many ways, but life's usual pattern is that family life is the seedbed of our conversation. In the home, we learn to say our first words and to express ourselves, even if it is just bickering with our brothers and sisters. For all, where would our politicians be without such essential training in the home? God's eternal conversation. Prayer, when it comes right down to it, is a conversation. A particular kind of conversation, but a conversation nonetheless. This speaking also finds its origins in family life. Not just any family, of course, but the first family, from which all families receive their name and being, the family of God. This family is the source of all other families, as well as being the image in which they are all made. God's family has existed from eternity, sharing one life of perfect love together. It's a perfect union in communion, one God in three persons, one family life with three persons who share it, the Father, his only begotten Son, and the Spirit who proceeds from them. From eternity, the Father has been a father, and so eternally has had a son. The Son from eternity has been a son, and so eternally has had a father. The Spirit, who from eternity has been the Spirit of God, and so eternally has proceeded from God. As there has always been three persons in this one family, so also there has always been a family conversation. In the beginning was the Word. From eternity there was talking within the family of the Trinity. As St. John so beautifully reveals the identity of the second person of the Trinity as the eternal Word, he uncovers for us the mystery that speaking lies at the heart of God's eternal being. The eternal word testifies to the truth that there has never been a wordless moment between the three divine persons. To be silent within himself would cause God to cease to be, an impossibility for the eternal I am. Although at times sinful man may experience God's apparent silence, which arguably is do more to our trouble with hearing rather than God speaking. God within himself is never quiet. Although many a husband may earn the silent treatment from his wife, the persons of the Trinity would never say anything dumb enough to be at the receiving end of what we husbands well earn from time to time. The only moment when we see such silence from heaven would be at the exceptional hour when the Son of God, as man, takes on all our sin in all of its fullness on the cross, and so lives in the true horror of our broken relationship with God. If you can grasp, even to the smallest degree, the depths of the communion between the Father and the Son, lived out in their eternal speaking and hearing of one another, then you can begin to hear the true depths of the pain and suffering 
in Christ's heart-rending cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Although as God the Word, Christ could never experience such unimaginable trauma, as man, he can and truly does go through this for our sake. God's knowing conversation that creates. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are ever talking with one another, but not so that they can get better acquainted or share unknown information. The Father doesn't need to ask the Son, so what happened in your day today? As the three in one, the three persons know one another as none other is known. From eternity, they have known each other as one. As their communion is eternal, so too their knowledge of one another is eternal. There's nothing that they don't get about each other. As one God, they're fully aware of what each person has done, is doing, and will do. Such knowing of another is an idea that quite simply is hard for us to grasp, although many a couple may long for it with one another. Our lives are so fundamentally shaped by our inability to fully know others and to be known to them that we can only imagine what such understanding of a husband, a wife, a child, a parent, a friend would be like. Unlike our speaking, the eternal conversation of the Trinity doesn't reveal the heart of one of its persons to another, but is born of the heart that they share together. They don't speak to be known, but being known they speak. They don't speak to share a life, but sharing a life they speak. In our lives in this world, we have to speak so that others can get what we're thinking. We cannot know or be known without revealing ourselves to each other. Such communication is not necessary in the three-in-one, since the Son knows the heart of the Father from eternity, and the Spirit knows the mind of God from the beginning of time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit know each other to the very depths of their being that they share as one God. There were no how-do-you-do's within the eternal I am, or any you never guess what happened today's either. In our lives, we still see glimpses of such knowing-based speaking. We do talk with people that we don't know so that we might get to know them. This is how we make new friends at school, in our neighborhoods, at work, or in our churches. But there are also people that we are well acquainted with, whom we speak with because we know them. Husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors, etc. Talk because of the relationship that they have with each other. Although their communication may continue to reveal new things about each other, their speaking together flows from the fact that they know one another. The conversation of a husband and wife is born of their intimate knowledge of each other. They speak in a knowing way because of the one life that they share. Another essential truth about God speaking is that it's never a fruitless one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't use any empty words. There's no mindless babbling in the heart of the Trinity. There are no nervous talkers amongst the three in one. None of them ever just tries to fill up empty space. There are no awkward silences to fill, after all. Every word has a purpose. Every word says something. Every word does something. The word of God is always active, creating. It's always doing something. 
For us as Lutherans, this truth has always been very important for our lives in the church. We hold firmly to the truth that God's Word does what it says when it comes to such things as baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper, as well as the living and active proclaimed Word of the law and the gospel. The speaking in the heart of the Trinity is a speaking of love that is ever creating their life together. This act of speaking within the heart of the Trinity is what God sent out to create all that was made. Created to be in conversation. In the beginning, as God created us in his own image, he made us as speaking beings. As the Trinity engages in an eternal conversation, we too were made to be in conversation with our creator and with one another. As we were born of the eternal speaking of God, we were created to be a part of his ongoing communication. God spoke to create us. As we were spoken to that we might be, we were made to speak. The ongoing chatter of creation testifies to this truth. The early morning song of the birds, the whale's sonic boom, the call of the loon, the cry of the wolf, the dance of the bee, all testify to the foundational speaking that brought them into being, even as they echo it in their ongoing existence. Although God has set man over his creation, our shared gift of communication points to our shared beginnings in the heart of God, brought into being through his word by his spirit. As God created man as both one and many, in a mere image of his own being, he created us as knowing and being known. As he created us as male and female, united in the one fleshness of husband and wife, he created us to know each other, even as he knows himself. The speaking between Adam and Eve was a beautiful reflection of the ongoing conversation of the three persons within the Trinity. Their conversation was born of a full and complete knowledge of one another. They didn't speak so that they could get to know each other, but being known to each other, they spoke. Such an existence is hard for us to imagine as we live under the effects of sin. Even the best of marriages is troubled with misunderstanding and conflict born of miscommunication between husband and wife. In the beginning, no such misspeaking and mishearing existed. Adam and Eve knew and understood each other as a mere image of God's own knowing of himself. As man and woman were created reflecting God's own perfection, they were made to share in his life. Although the man would never know God as the Lord eternally knows himself, he was created to know him and be known by him in time. He was not in on the original conversation of the three persons, but he was made to be a part of its ongoing speaking. As God created man out of his own eternal divine conversation, he created us to be a part of it. God spoke to us that we might speak to him. He began us with his word, that we might live in that word with him. As it was an eternal word, it was intended to be an eternal conversation. Man was not equal to God, he had a beginning in time. His knowledge of God and his conversation would always be limited by this beginning. But as the true image of God, he was made to speak and to be spoken to forever. As God made us out of his own act of speaking, he also made us to be a part of it 
The image of God's fruitful speaking can still be glimpsed in human life, even under the brokenness of sin. Human speaking still has the power to create. We do babble in ways that the Creator never intended. Our words are also often used to cause harm and give voice to the ugliness that has taken hold of our hearts in sin. Yet human speech has unquestionably created much beauty in poetry and writing. Great truths have been spoken and planted in people's hearts through human speech. Beautiful pictures are painted in the mind as well as on the canvas through the speaking of the human heart. Our speech has also made beautiful music for our souls with the foundational language of sound. Of course, this creative power of human speech is seen at its clearest closer to home in the family life I mentioned earlier. The life of love between a man and a woman is brought into being and maintained through their speaking with one another. God establishes the human home through the creative I do's that husband and wife speak to each other. From this creative word, a new life is formed as the two are joined into one so that according to God's will, they may give birth to new life and the gift of children. The life of love with these children is also born the creative speaking of the heart from parent to child and child to parent. Our own children come into being through the speaking of one heart to another, and they are brought into being to be spoken to and to speak their own creating word. To recap then, the Trinity is a family that speaks. God made us in his speaking image. We were created through his word to share in his conversation. We were made to speak with him and one another just as we were spoken to in the beginning. This conversation that we were made to be a part of wasn't a mindless one, but a beautiful, fruitful one intended to fill the creation with life. Man leaves behind God's conversation. None can know the depths of grief that welled up in the heart of God when we chose to stop speaking to him. As Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan's lies about God and his heart for them in Eden, they hopelessly flawed their knowledge of him and so brought to an end the beautiful conversation that he created them in. Having forsaken the true knowledge of God, the intimacy of the knowing conversation came to an end. God became a stranger to man, though God remained a father to him. God did not stop speaking to man. He continued to speak his creating word that brought man into existence and preserved him in it. But God closed his ears to God and ceased speaking to him. And so we see God searching for Adam and Adam hiding from God. As man chose to forget his beginning and aspire to be his own God, he cut off his conversation with his creator Having been created in communion with God, he turned his back on him to try and carry a conversation of his own on. It is true knowing can only come from the one who knows all. Any conversation undertaken apart from God will always be hopelessly flawed. Disconnected from God, man can no longer truly know anyone, not even himself. Without true knowing, there can be no true sharing of the heart. Having abandoned the speaking that he was created in, man lost its reflection within himself as well. A mirror can only show the image of the one that it's facing. Turn a mirror away from a face and it will no longer reflect it. A ghost of the image remains, 
But man miscommunicates far more than he communicates and understands, misunderstands far more than he understands. Although a shadow yet remains, true knowing is lost, and so true communication is lost with it. This reality is the one that we live in as sinners. Procreated in the image of Adam, we are doomed to seek out our own conversation, which can never live up to its forsaken origins. As sinners who insist on standing on our own apart from God, ever striving to be what we can never be, we can have no meaningful conversation with God. We don't truly know him, so we can't truly know one another. No longer understand him, and so we can no longer understand each other. Although husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors, can all more or less get to know each other and can speak based on that knowledge, life in the world, whether it's in the home, workplace, or neighborhood, is ever troubled by our imperfect communication. At the root of most problems between people is always a failure to speak and hear rightly. We may all speak the same language and yet still live in a babbling world. Family life under sin bears this truth out. You don't have to be married long to learn that our communication skills no longer reflect the image of God. A husband stands dumbfounded as his wife bursts into tears at his insensitivity. He's not sure if the trouble is what he said or how he said it. It was probably both. A wife tries to get her husband to talk about his true feelings, but they remain as much of a mystery to her as they probably are to him. Parents believe that they've spoken clearly with their children. Yet time and again, the message seems to get lost in translation. They might as well have been talking to the wall. Brothers and sisters can really get their point across at times, but it's not exactly the kind of speaking that draws them closer together. You're such a doughhead, not being the verbal communion we're going for here. Our messed up communication with God and one another comes to its ultimate end and sin's final consequences. Brought into being by God speaking, we were created to speak as we were spoken to, that we might share our lives with God and one another. Destructive as sin can be in our daily interaction with each other, its concluding outcome is utterly devastating. Poorly as we may communicate with one another in life, death shuts down the conversation altogether. When sin gives us our final severance check, there's nothing left to talk about. The dead do not speak. The widow may whisper her tender words to her husband lying in the casket, but he answers no more. The deafening silence of the marital home screams out the loss as a wife longs to hear her husband's voice and forgetfully calls for him. The dead speak no more, either to man or to God, as the psalmist laments. Death's silence shows that miscommunication is not the root of all our troubles in our life with God and one another. The root cause is sin. Yet a breakdown in communication is an unavoidable consequence of that sin. The reason we do not communicate well is because in the beginning we turned away from the word of God. Without the word there can be no true speaking. Many believe that the troubles of our world would easily be solved if we only learned how to communicate better. The world rightly recognizes one of the symptoms but misses the disease. Although there can be benefits in treating the symptoms, the disease cannot be cured by such treatment. 
our communication troubles with God and so with one another can only be cured with the curing of sin. God restarts the conversation. From that terrible day in Eden, when sin devastated God's glorious creation, the Lord committed himself to restore it. Even as his image was shattered in us with Adam and Eve's sin, God, in his mercy, set in motion his plan for our healing. He set that plan in motion with the very word of promise that he would save us from the serpent's power. Although salvation would not be accomplished for many years to come, the setting in place of the plan itself opened up the way for us to be returned to life with God. Here was a word that revealed God's heart for us. Here was a word that opened up our own hearts to the truth of who this God was who had created us. Here was a word that began our reintroduction to God, that we might know him once more as he created us to know and be known. This first word was only the beginning of a long conversation that would be carried on over centuries. As the Lord would speak through his prophets to unfold his heart to the world, the Lord spoke through the prophets so that we might come to know him and in knowing him be able to share in the knowing conversation that he created us in and for in the beginning. All this time he was drawing man back to himself preparing for that day when he would reestablish our broken communion by sending his son to become man. He continued to speak to us, and so we were able to speak to him. Getting to know him, we could call on his name and begin to speak to him as one who is known to us. As we grew in our relationship with him, he prepared us for the life he was planning for us in his own family. When the fullness of time, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, the fullness of God's heart was laid bare before us. The Son came that we might know the Father as he knows the Father. The Son came that we might share his life as children of God. The Son came that we might receive the Spirit so that we might abide in God. The Son came to renew our lives and the family life of the Holy Trinity. The Son came to overcome the lie about God that the serpent had whispered into our ears and that we have believed ever since. He came to show us that God was not a grasping, demanding, overbearing deity, but a loving, gracious, and devoted Father. He showed this truth in all of its fullness when on account of the Father's love, he went up on the cross to spread out his arms and save the world. The Son took on himself all that divided us from God to bind back together all that was torn apart. With his own life, he filled the great chasm that separated us from God and one another. The Lord Jesus Christ entered into our silence on the cross. As the eternal word spoken from eternity, he could not be silenced. Yet as true man on Calvary, he entered into the silence of death to set us free from it. As the son of the father, he could not break fellowship with God. It is man on the cross. He was cut off for us that we might be reunited with God. While his very God of very God, the son must forever enjoy his eternal conversation with the father. Hanging on the tree as man, he is cursed by God's damning silence 
to bring us back into heaven's conversation. The second person of the Trinity, according to his human nature, goes through the fullness of sin's awkward silence so that through him we might know, know the joyful communion of God's family table. God returns us to his conversation. God returns us to his family through the new birth that he gives us in the waters of holy baptism. Here God unites our lives with the life of Christ as he baptizes us into Jesus' death. As we are buried with him in the water, we rise with him from that watery grave to live a new life in him. God clothes us with Christ so that through his son we might be his children. We are no longer strangers to him in sin, but members of his own family, welcomed to his table and invited into his own conversation. God speaks his word to us and welcomes us, even looking for our speaking in return. As children of God in Christ, the Father invites us in Christ to join in the intimate conversation of the Holy Trinity. As Christ makes his place our place in heaven, he also gives us his voice at the family table. The place Christ gives to us in the Father's own family is not a servant's place. We are not brought in to stand behind God's chair in silence. We are invited to take part in that intimate and active speaking that goes on in the heart of the Trinity. When the disciples ask the Lord Jesus to teach them to pray, he gives them his own prayer. Jesus gives them his part in the act of speaking that goes on in the heavenly places. He gives them the prayer that he, as the Son of God, prays for us, and that as man he now also prays in our place. He invites us to speak with him to his Abba, as dear children speak to their dear father. He invites us to pray as he prays. He invites us to pray with him. Through baptism into Christ, the Lord's prayers, you see, become our prayers. We pray in his name and in his stead. His pleading for the world becomes our pleading. The point is not that Christ takes up our prayers according to our will, we are lifted up instead to the place where we get to take up Christ's prayers according to God's will. Here is true praying in Christ's name, true praying in Christ's stead. The baptismal truth that God is our dear Father and that we are his dear children means that we are truly remade in his image. This means that now his will is our will. His ways are now our ways. His heart is now our heart. His speaking now becomes our speaking. His goals are now our goals, and his purposes are now our purposes. As God's true children, we are being remade to think and act like our dear Father. The speaking life that we are welcomed into in our prayers in Jesus is not about us imposing our will on God. Since we are true children of the Father, what God wants should be what we want. In our baptism, God rescued us from the abusive fatherhood of Satan and his ugly image. The devil's will is self-centered and self-focused, looking to get all that he can for himself. Satan, as the adversary, sets his will against God's will. In Christ, the Lord is setting us free from such a self-focused, self-centered will. The Lord is setting us free 
from such a rebellious will. In our new life as his dear children, the Father is renewing us in the truth of the goodness of his will for us. In our new life in Christ, the Spirit is schooling us in the truth that when it comes to God, Father really does know best. In the Christian life, our prayers are growing out of being ordered by how we see our needs into how God sees them. In the prayer that Jesus gives us to pray, there's nothing about the million dollars so many confirmands want to know about when it comes to asking for things in Jesus' name. Will I get it if I ask really believing? There is also no request for the hamster that I so desperately wanted for my fifth birthday and that I asked for with all of my might day and night. I beat on the doors of heaven, willing, believing, with all my childlike faith that it would be mine. What I got was a blue budgie that I named Jake. Hamsters, you see, were seen to belong firmly in the rat family, according to the upper management of my childhood home. And so were persona non grata. Although the prayer that Jesus gives us does include our earthly needs, its overall tone rises above my youthful requests for a pet rodent. Without question, God heard my prayers and in love answered them in a way that blessed both my parents and me. It was also God's will to draw me deeper into the prayer he gave me to pray. In the Our Father, Jesus invites us to join with him in interceding for the life of the world. This prayer reveals the Trinity's family business as it addresses that business and engages in it. There our Father shows us God's will for us and the world as we pray for the hallowing of his name, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, as we pray for daily bread and for the work of his forgiveness in us and through us, as we pray to be kept from temptation and delivered from evil, we are drawn into God's glorious plans for the world, which seem so much further than what we would either think or dare to ask for according to our own will. For truly God has brought us back into his family that we might be a part of his conversation, not so that we can make him a part of ours. Since he is God and it's his family, he sets the topic for the family discussion. We get to talk about what he's talking about. Prayer is not about interrupting God with our more important ideas. God brings us back into his own active speaking. As we join in Christ speaking as dear children of the Father, we join in the active speaking of the Holy Trinity. The words that we speak in Christ are not just spoken wishes or desires. They are words that do as they say. Through these words, the Lord does his work in us and in the world to fulfill his plans for all. When we take up these words in Christ, we speak them in and through Christ, which makes them power-filled words. This speaking, then, is not just a request or plea, but a very requesting, the very requesting and pleading is fulfilling what it is requesting and pleading for according to God's own will. As our lips are opened with Christ by the Spirit of the Father, God's name is hallowed, his kingdom comes, and his will is done. Just as the words themselves say, their work begins in us as we pray them, and through us, their work is being done in the world. 
In this way, even the smallest child who takes up the Lord's word with Jesus gets more done in this world than the greatest and mightiest of men. Such a child does greater things than all the great heroes of human history. Even in the church, we often tend to focus on or make much fuss about a person's gifts when it comes to speaking or preaching or praying, as if in some way the word of God is more effective because a given person speaks more eloquently or more dynamically than someone else. As Lutherans, we have always understood that the power lies in the word and in the word alone. I am nothing when it comes to the word of God. The word does what it says because it is God's word. I add nothing to it. I cannot make it more effective. God does not need me to cry it out. He could raise up stones to say it far more effectively than I do. It's sad and dangerous when there's so much emphasis in the church on the mere dust that speaks instead of on the word that is spoken. The life of prayer, our hope lies in the word of God, that the Lord has given us to pray as God's own dear children, baptized into Christ, and so praying in Christ, we speak Christ's own word in the sure and certain promise that we will be heard as he is heard, focused on the truth of our baptism, that we are God's dear children. We need never doubt that our dear Father will hear us and will answer us as we pray with his son Jesus. What we pray for in Christ is God's own will. When we take up his own word as our prayer, then there can be no doubt that he will do what we ask, since what we will be asking for is his own will. When we pray with the Lord's word, according to his own will, we are brought into God's own work in life. And in our sinfulness, we can lose sight of what an honor and privilege this is for us as God's children. Lost in the lie of our own divinity, we can somehow think that it would be so wonderful if God worked according to our will. We don't get the real wonder that the Lord of heaven and earth is ready to make us a part of his work as members of his own family. Praying the Lord's own word in the Lord's will is like being a paint-by-number artist and having someone like Leonardo da Vinci take your hand and guide it to add a few brushstrokes on the canvas of the Mona Lisa. Praying according to our will is like being a paint-by-number artist but wanting to take hold of da Vinci's hand to write his painting on his canvas. In the one case, we get to be a part of something beautiful. In the other, we'd only mess up the creation of a great artist. In repentance as God's children, we know that the Lord is God, and that we have nothing to add to his wisdom that will make it better for us or for others. Humbly, we take our place as his dear children in the sure and certain truth that our Heavenly Father loves his creation, and especially as dear children, beyond anything that we can ever imagine. From a sinful point of view, the child's place is a lowly one. When you want to be your own God, being God's kid is no big deal. But when you are in repentance before Almighty God, there could be no greater honor than being numbered among his dear children. As God speaks to us, we learn to speak. 
As God's children, we learn to pray just as every other child learns to pray or speak in this world. Every now and then we hear some tragic stories of neglected children who are discovered after years of abuse. In some cases, these children have been cut off from almost all human contact with the sad effect that they don't know how to speak. We learn to speak as we are spoken to. In the same way, our prayers are shaped and formed by God speaking to us by his word. If he did not speak to us first, we would not be able to speak to him. Without his speaking to us, we would not know who to speak to in our prayer. One of the notable events in the life of God's people in the Old Testament is the revelation of God's name to Moses. Calling on the name of the Lord was only possible because God gave it to them to call upon. The Lord heard his people's cries from Egypt even without that name. But the revelation of his name brought them deeper into their relationship with him and so enriched and informed their prayers to him. As God's revelation continues throughout the life of his people, the conversation keeps on deepening and growing, much as our own deepens and grows with our children in this world. There's a special moment in life when a child no longer goes off to play with the other children after a meal, but wants to stay, to hear and share in the adult conversation. I remember when it happened for me, even as I'm now seeing it with my own growing children. As the Lord spoke to his people of old by the prophets, he was leading them and preparing them for the last days when he would speak to them through his son. He was preparing them for the day when in Christ he would draw them closer to himself to know his full mind and counsel and be able to take up a full voice in his conversation. On a personal level, we too are being led by the Lord into a deepening understanding of his work and will for us in the world. He's working in us to draw us closer to his own mind and heart. Early in faith, we speak like children, think like children, and reason like children. But the Lord is at work to mature us in faith. When I was little, I prayed for my hamster. The Lord heard my prayer and answered it in his wisdom with Jake, my blue budgie. Yet as the Lord has spoken to me through the years, he has brought me to know his mind for me in the world in ever-deepening ways. He has taught me to pray for even greater things. His word has come to frame my prayers as he in love has continued to speak it to me, enriching my own conversation with him through that word. The Lord has taught me that prayer is not simply about bringing my wants before the Father, but joining in the priestly work of Jesus for the life of the world. As God's children, we grow into God's act of speaking for the life of the world. This intimate conversation begins the word that God himself speaks to us, just as a child learns how to speak by hearing his parents. God's children learn how to share in heaven's conversation by hearing the Lord's own speaking. From the beginning, the word of God and our prayer have gone hand in hand for this reason. We cannot know who to pray to or what to pray for without God saying something first. We as children cannot take up our proper place within God's speaking without first listening to him. Otherwise, we would add in words out of keeping with what God is talking about. Without first listening, we can't take an active, informed role in the speaking. Without listening first, we can be like those people who make odd comments because they've only come in on the middle of a conversation. Like the pastor who overheard two other pastors praising the president last night. Interrupting them, he told them, 
that he thought that this president was an utter disaster. The trouble, of course, is that he thought they were talking about Obama, not our faithful Pastor Pugby. <laughs> God speaking keeps our joint speaking on topic. In the life of the church, this essential relationship between our prayers and the Word of God is lived out in the Sunday morning service. The pattern handed down to us is that God's Word and prayer go hand in hand. We listen to what the Lord has to say, and then we speak back to Him based on that Word. Hearing from Him brings us into His conversation, where we get to reflect on what He was talking about, which then allows us to speak meaningfully with Him. His word uncovers the needs of the world and sets forth God's answer to meet them. Hearing this word allows us to speak of those needs and pray for them in accord with God's own answer. The church is never simply gathered to speak uninformed by the word of God. Such a one-sided conversation would quickly get off track. Ask any pastor what happens when his confirmation class is allowed to simply follow the whim of its students. Very quickly, you're talking about how Jane got into trouble at recess for calling Chloe bad names, how Julia's little brother got into trouble for belting his sister with his tow truck in the sandbox, and how Murray's parents had to sleep in on Sunday morning because they were at a party on Saturday night. As the church has gathered to pray, she has always listened as much as she has spoken. In fact, she has listened far more than she has spoken. As sinners, you're often like that person who can't help but want to control the conversation. They only listen so they can say what they want to say when they really aren't listening at all. They're simply waiting for the other person to finish so they can say what they have already decided to put out there. They figure they've got some gem that they just have to pass along, and so they stand there like a dog pulling on its chain, just waiting to get it out. Sometimes they aren't even polite enough to wait, but simply blurt out what they are thinking, speaking over other people. How sad it is when we are so filled with our own importance that we don't really listen, but simply have to make our own point. Here is no true conversation, but a proclaiming from on high to another. Once again, our old God complex rears its ugly head. As God's dear children in repentance, we should know that this is not the way to speak with our God. If the Lord is God, then who are we to proclaim to him the way that things should be or what he ought to know or do? In our speaking with him, we can only know what to say and how to say it by first listening to him. In repentance, then, we know that what God has to share with us is far more important than anything we would have to say. In repentance, we would know that listening to him should take up the bigger part of our conversation because he has the important things to say to us and not the other way around. He has the wise things to reveal to us. <clears throat> God wants us to speak. He invites us to speak. He even commands us to speak. Otherwise, what repentant person would dare to address the Almighty? Yet in repentance and faith, we know that the Lord should be the one to lead the conversation. The wisdom is found first and foremost in listening, being quick to hear and slow to speak. God's speaking keeps our private speaking on topic. In our private prayers, then, there is also a place to follow the pattern of the church. The personal devotion as well as the family devotion is kept on point by first hearing the word of God. 
Our prayers are kept on topic and within the will of God when we listen to God first and then ask. His living word filled with his spirit opens our lips and teaches us to pray as we ought to pray. The spirit and the word brings our will into line with God's will. The word opens our hearts to pray with confidence as God's dear children by setting the truths of our baptism before us. The word leaves us in no doubt of God's heart for us in Christ and so teaches us to pray in faith that God will, <coughs> God's will is always the right answer for us. Luther's daily prayer in the small catechism follows this pattern. He instructs us to pray the invocation along with the sign of the cross as a reminder of our baptism. The invocation is God's own name that he has given us as a reminder, has given us as his children in holy baptism so that we might be his own, so that he, we might call upon him. This beginning is both a word from the Lord as well as a word that we speak. Here's a word that God spoke to us first when we were baptized, that we might speak it back to him. With his name, God has brought us into his family and so made us a part of the family conversation. Every time we call upon the name of the Lord, we live out the truth of God's baptismal word to us. We live out our identity as God's own dear children. Although it is an action word, the sign of the cross that Luther also commends sets a word of God before us. We claim that word as our own as we do it. The sign of the cross is an action word that sets before us the for you truth of the cross of Jesus. The sign of the cross testifies to the truth that Christ died, and as I make it over myself, it proclaims that he died on the cross for me. As I begin my prayers with this sign, I'm reminded of my baptism when the benefits of the cross were made mine, where Jesus said to me, this is for you. Each time I make the sign of the cross, Jesus speaks that same word to me. As I trace the instrument of my salvation over my own flesh and blood, I'm reminded by God that I'm redeemed by Christ. As I cover my body with the cross, I'm reminded of the truth that I've been baptized into Christ's death and have risen out of the water clothed with Christ. From the invocation, Luther then instructs us to confess the Apostles' Creed. Here also is God's word that he speaks to us, that we might speak it back to him. Here's the scriptural truth gathered together in all of its fullness for the children of God. Here is the testimony of all that the Trinity has done for me, is doing for me, and will do for me and the whole world. The creed is the ancient summary of the Christian faith, given that God's people might carry his word around with them in their hearts, in their minds, that they might be able to confess it with their lips. When we say the creed, God speaks his word to us that we might hold on to his truth and know his will for the world. From here, Luther has us go on to pray the prayer Jesus has given us, as well as the morning and evening prayers that he composed. Now, of course, our life of prayer doesn't need to be limited to Luther's prayers, although they do beautifully lay out a godly way for us to pray, and they are to be commended as a part of our life with the Lord. We should be careful, though, not to look down on what has been laid out by someone else, thinking that somehow we can improve on it with all that we have to offer. The repentant heart does not think this way, but humbly takes what it receives and rejoices it even though we may certainly add to that prayer by laying out our own petitions in our own words. The prayers that our hearts compose 
those should not mistakenly be seen as being better in any way than the prayers that the church has taught God's children to pray throughout the ages. Seeing prayer in this light would lead us to that sad place where some Christians have gone, where even the other Father is laid aside. Prayer is not about what begins in us. We do not start the conversation. We are not God, despite what we might think in sin. The Lord began the whole conversation through his word. That's who was there in the beginning. The child doesn't teach the parent to speak. A life of prayer begins in God. He speaks that we might speak. I remember a time as a child when I wanted to pray about sunshine and butterflies. Somehow I'd gotten the idea that this was better because if I talked about what I wanted to talk about, then I was treating God like he was really there and really listening. While we should pray as though God is really there and really listening, we don't have to make up words or focus the conversation on what we want to talk about for this to be true. In fact, since God is really there and listening, this is all the more reason why we should talk about what he wants us to talk about. When I want to talk about the sunshine and puppy dogs, my father, the good German, who says what he needs to say with as few words as possible, directed me back to the Lord's Prayer. He didn't shut down the sunshine and butterflies, but he did keep me on track with the glorious things that God had given me to pray for in this world. The time for sunshine and puppy dogs would come to an end, but the hallowing of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, his will being done, and so on, that would carry on my whole life through. Even at four, you see, <coughs> as God's child, God had important work for me to do in this world. Even at four, I was his child. Even at four, I was one of the little ones that Jesus did not despise, whose faith was, not to, be, was to be used for big things. Even at four, I was one of God's holy priests. Even at four, I was to share in Christ's work. Even at four, I was to be a part of God's people as they gather on Sunday morning to add my amen to their prayers and join in them for the good of the world. As a shepherd boy and his sling taught us, God uses child soldiers to overcome his people's enemies. In fact, God specializes in using the weak and despised ones of the world to accomplish his great purposes in order to display the glory of his might. You only have to remember that God's greatest work began with a baby lying in a manger and then finished with a bleeding, dying man on a cross to get refocused on how God works. As children of God, we are never too small or too weak to join in the great works of God. It is just for this purpose that he has brought us into his family, to be about the Father's business. As God's family, we speak together. God's work in this world is a family business, and by his great grace through our baptism into Jesus, he has made us all a part of it. In truth, as Christians, we never pray alone. Baptized into Christ, we always pray with Jesus. Baptized with the Spirit, we always pray with the Spirit. For the Christian prayers are never a one-sided conversation. They are not a monologue to God. Even as one speaks, others form a part of the speaking. Even as there is one voice, there is always more than one speaker, one in many, as it always is with the things of God. Even a solo in Christian prayer is always a chorus. 
In fact, even when we do not open our lips, the Son is interceding in us and through us, even as he intercedes for us. When we do not know how to pray, the Spirit still prays within us with groans too deep for words. Our baptismal reality is that we are part of God's family in unity with the Son in the life of the Spirit. This means that day in and day out, we are a part of the Trinity's ongoing conversation, even as God is at work to draw us ever deeper into it. We speak for each other. Christian prayer is always family prayer, which is why we ask others to join us in our prayers. On Sunday mornings, the church gathers in one place to do her great work of interceding for the world. Yet she also continues to pray as each of the many members that form her one body lift up their voices in their individual pleas. As one of God's children or a group of them runs into a particular need, the church takes up that need together. She asks the children of God to keep that need in their prayers. Together, we bring those needs before the Father, making them a part of God's act of speaking to provide the answers that are needed in Christ. Of course, God already knows what those needs are and will provide the answer that he knows is best. Yet in great grace, he wants to make us a part of his speaking work in the world. In this way, he uses us to bring these needs into the divine conversation. As God's family, then, Christians ask one another to pray for each other, as Scripture clearly teaches us to do, inviting us to pray for one another that we might be healed. We pray together that we might be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. In praying together, we live out our communal life with one another. In praying together, we live out the unity that God has recreated amongst us as he overcomes the divisions of sin. In praying together, we do not, however, gain more influence over God. We pray together because as God's children, that is what we are called to do. Yet our fa Heavenly Father listens to the cry of the poor, lonely widow who weeps before him in the dark hours of the night simply because she is his dear child and he is her dear father. Contrary to what some believe, God is not moved to do what we ask because we get enough votes behind our petition. When tragedy strikes, we do not need to mobilize the prayer forces so that God will answer. What kind of dear father would we have if we'd only answer if we had enough popular vote? God doesn't take polls and certainly doesn't set heavenly policy by them. As a dear father, he always does what is best for his dear children. We do not gather to pray or ask others to pray on our behalf because the prayers of many are better heard than the prayers of one. Only the priests of Baal had to yell louder to heaven in hopes of waking Baal up or grabbing his attention while he was away on a trip or relieving himself on the toilet. The God of Israel heard and answered when only Elijah was left to lift up his voice to him. He did not need to yell. He did not need to get the numbers behind him. He did not need to get God's attention. His dear Father in heaven heard him simply because Elijah was his dear child. We ask others to pray with us because we are a family and so share our burdens together even as we share in our intercession. When others ask us to pray, God provides another opportunity for us to be drawn into his work for the world. 
Praying for others is a great honor and blessing for us. The trials and needs of others in a very Christ-like way then serve God's purpose of drawing us closer to him. The suffering of others draws us closer to God as it leads us to pray. We speak together forever. Now, if God's conversation is eternal, carrying on forever across all time and space, that means that as his child, I will be a part of it even after Christ takes me to his Father's house. Even in heaven, God will continue to involve me in his active speaking for the life and salvation of the world. What God begins in me in this world is fulfilled in heaven. The speaking won't come to an end. It will become all the richer and fuller. Every Sunday, we clearly say that with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we join in calling on the name of the Lord. God unites heaven and earth in his word. In Jesus, he undoes all that tears us apart. He joins heaven and earth as one, including in the life of prayer. We pray together because in Jesus, we're all a part of God's ongoing conversation. While the early Lutherans were rightly concerned about people being misdirected away from Jesus by being taught to pray to the saints, they granted that the saints in heaven pray for the church on earth. The sad idea that you had to go to Jesus' mom to get her to put in a good word with her somewhat testy and judgmental son without question perverted the truth of the gospel. Here was no real savior. Without a real savior, of course, there wasn't any dear father in heaven, eager to hear the cries of his dear children either. The early Lutherans granted that Mary, without question, prays for us. She does it simply because she is one of God's dear children. She too has been brought in through Jesus into God's act of speaking for the life of the world. If we are blessed to be a part of that act of speaking on earth, then how much more so will we be blessed when that continues in heaven? The Lutherans argued that Mary doesn't need to be asked to pray in heaven because set free from sin, she doesn't need to be prompted to do so, but simply fulfills her calling as she is meant to do in Christ. The church, after all, is not made up of living saints on earth and dead ones in heaven. The calling we begin on earth is not ended but fulfilled when we enter in the fullness of God's presence. The saints in heaven enjoy and live in the reality of God's love as they abide in and fully live out God's will in heaven. As God's heart is turned toward the world and its needs and salvation, there can be no question that the hearts of the saints are turned with his toward this world. The saints in heaven are not in a joy that forgets all the needs of others, turned in on itself like some Buddhist nirvana. They do have peace in the truth, though, that all is unfolding according to God's plan under his control. They do not worry and fret like we do because they fully know and live in faith's truth that the Lord is God. They care for us in our troubles, but they are not anxious about them. Heaven's great cloud of witnesses are alive in Christ. They're not cut off from us. We remain united in Jesus. Death has no more dominion over him or over any who abide in him, who is the resurrection and the life. We are one family. Our needs continue to be their needs. They pray for us because they continue to care for us. 
The early graffiti in the catacombs calling on Peter and Paul to pray for the church no doubt were based on this truth. When I was going through seminary, the only part of the Lutheran confessions that I found more shocking than the fact that we said that Mary was the mother of God was when I read the passage that said, we do not forbid prayers for the dead. What? I thought. What's this all about? Why on earth would I want to pray for the dead? I can see how I could use their prayers, but what on earth would I pray for them for? Don't they already have all that they need? At that point, I still saw prayer as something I did to get some God to do something he wasn't doing or wouldn't do already. As if I noticed a problem that escaped his attention, and I had to say, ahem, God, I think you missed something over here. I didn't get the idea that in prayer God was involving me in his work. I still saw it as my own. Now, I must confess I don't make use of this freedom to pray for the dead. The Book of Concord allows me, other than to remember the saints that we remember throughout the church year. The early Lutherans allowed prayers for the dead without telling us we had to do it. Now, of course, it didn't mean that we could somehow pray these people into heaven. Without question, they knew that Jesus had that one covered. The allowance, rather, is built on the idea that even in heaven, everything that we receive, we receive by God's grace. We get to heaven. It's not like we've earned something that is ours by right. The life God gives us there will ever flow to us, but not because God owes it to us. That life is never truly ours that we can claim it as our own, but it is a continual gift from our dear Father in heaven. Again, we must understand that prayer is not about getting God to do something that he wouldn't do on his own. Prayer does not force God's hand against his will. It's not some sort of arm wrestling match that we're doing with folded hands. Prayer brings us into God's own work for the world. It makes us a part of his act of speaking. Prayer joins us in his will for his dear children. The saints in heaven enjoy God's blessings because he wills to pour them out upon them. Asking him to do that simply makes us a part of what he is doing according to his own will. As we pray for God's work to be done, we are reminded that he is doing it, even as we join in on it. Mary in heaven prays for us in accord with God's will, but she's not in heaven as though she made it on her own, and now God owes her something. She enjoys God's blessings only by God's grace. And so, as we would pray for the blessings on others, the confessors allowed that you could also ask God to bless her likewise. As heaven and earth pray together for each other, we see how beautifully God is bringing us all back together around his table to join in his conversation. Dear Father, hears his dear children. When it comes right down to it, the way you see prayer is determined by the way that you see God. If you look on him outside of Christ, you can only see him from the perspective of the law. Without Jesus, you cannot see a dear heavenly father. Your sins get in the way. All you can see is a faraway God who is justifiably angered over your faults and failures. Outside of Christ, you can only see God as an adversary, which shouldn't be a real shocker since outside of Christ, you can only see God from Satan's viewpoint. 
In Christ, though, you can see God from the perspective of the gospel as a dear heavenly father who delights to give good gifts to you. In Christ, you can see a God who loves you, saves you, and claims you as his own. In Christ, you can see a God who welcomes you into his own family, giving you a place and a voice at his table. When we view God outside of Christ, prayer becomes an appeal to a distant God to do something for our good. From the viewpoint of the law, God is someone that we have to get to do what we want by begging or bargaining or convincing or coercing. Our prayers interrupt him in his conversation, intruding on his time and thoughts to get him to pay attention to our needs or troubles. Our prayers get him to be bothered with us and take some time out of his regular business to deal with us, like those two-year-olds who knock on the door of the bathroom to get their mother's attention. We wrestle with God to get him to give us something that he wouldn't give us on his own. We have to bend him to our will. If we didn't pray, he wouldn't look after us. If we didn't pray, he would simply let everything go hurtling out of control toward hell. If we didn't pray, God would not work anything for our good. God's involvement in our lives would all depend on us and our asking. His help would hinge on our request for it. From the viewpoint of the gospel, however, God is a dear heavenly father who has made us to be his dear children. He is watching over us, ever attentive to our every need and trouble. He provides even before we want. He answers even before we ask. He helps even before we call. Our prayers do not interrupt his thoughts. They do not break in on his conversation. As his children, our voices are welcomed into the family dialogue. As his dear children, he makes us a part of his act of speaking for the life of the world. He invites us to join him in addressing the needs of the world and their answer in Jesus. He speaks to us in his word that we might come to know him and so learn to speak like him. As he draws us into his own speaking, he unites us as one family in his one voice. As the children of God, we then speak together for each other over space and time. Heaven and earth are united in one conversation and in one voice. When our eyes are fixed on our sin, then we can only see God as an angry deity who needs to be appeased and somehow motivated to act for us. When our eyes are fixed on our sin, we cannot know God or call on his name as his dear children would call to a dear father. But with Jesus before our eyes, and the truth of our new birth and holy baptism, all that we can see is a God of love, who is our dearest Father, who delights to hear his children and answer when they call. And the greatest, greatest act of grace, this dear Father welcomes us into his family, inviting us to call in his name. He opens our lips to join in his own speaking for the life of the world, Truly no man could ever imagine what God had in mind for us in Jesus. What great grace is given to us that we should be called children of God to be given such a voice at the Father's own table. To close, I would like to sing uh, a hymn that I wrote to summarize some of these uh, thoughts. I invite you to stand.
like to thank you for your patience and attention. God bless you.